It is very easy to become numb to media bias these days. And a buzzword you've probably heard a lot recently, that word is woke. Woke elitists. Woke media. Woke media. Woke media. Woke media. Woke media. The media shift from holding the powerful to account to actually working on their behalf. Woke indoctrination. The woke agenda. We're not going to let this state descend into some type of woke dumpster fire. Who are we to make these decisions? We're the media elite. This is Ravi Gupta, and you're listening to The Regressives. This is a narrative podcast series from Lost Debate that examines progressive policies, ideas, and leaders in practice. I'm a veteran of progressive campaigns, and I've long felt that liberals' professed values and practices are out of sync, and this podcast is dedicated to shining a light on the discrepancies in the hopes of eliminating them. If you've come to this episode from the regular Lost Debate feed, our regular episodes will, will be as scheduled next week, but we hope you stick around for this conversation because today I'm speaking with Batia Unger Sargon, who's the deputy opinion editor at Newsweek and the author of the book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. And her book makes the argument that American journalism underwent a status revolution over the 20th century from a blue collar trade to an elite profession. I know that a lot of you, when you hear the word woke, you're going to roll your eyes. And I get it because it's a word that's overused and weaponized by a lot of people who are not well-intentioned. But she truly is. And this is a nuanced take. And we have a great conversation about just what the media is anymore. Because part of what I was pushing back on with her was that there's the media now refers to a lot of things. And a lot of the critiques of the media that say it's too left-wing, center on the traditional media, but we now have this new disaggregated media that's really big and dominant, and in some cases bigger than the traditional media, and that new media is dominated by more right-wing figures. So we talk about that, we have a good back and forth about that, and I really, I, I, I find this whole conversation illuminating because so many people make so many claims in this area, but we rarely look at the data and cogently try to like untangle this rapid change in media that's happened over the past 10 to 20 years. And that's exactly what she does. And so I'm excited to jump in. Let's just get right into it. Well, Batia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, huge fan of your book. So this book, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy, and I think the official title is Bad News. Before we get into your theory, you say at some point early on in the book that you you come at this critique of traditional media, mainstream media, left-wing media from the perspective of somebody who's from the left. Uh, do you mind just describing like who you are, what you believe, and your kind of trajectory within journalism that led you even to write this book in the first place? Um, sure. Um, yeah, I think of myself as a left-wing populist. Um, although increasingly, I just think left and right, it just makes no sense anymore. Like, you look at, for example, like, who the anti-war faction in American government today is, and it's like the <laughs> MAGA right, right? You know, like, the most yep. anti-war person in America right now is Marjorie Taylor Greene. And, you know, that that so that, whereas, like, the progressive caucus tried to put out this sort of mealy mouth letter suggesting maybe Ukraine might want to try negotiating a little bit. And then they had to withdraw it because it was so anathema to their side. I'm just using that as one example mm -hmm. of many in which 
the categories of American public political life have been scrambled of late. So I just don't think left and right means very much anymore. So I would say like the most important thing, I guess, about my worldview is that I'm a populist. I believe in the wisdom of the crowd and the American people. I think you know, both as an American and as a Jewish person, I feel so deeply connected to the fabric of this nation. There's been no country like it ever. And um, I just think that, it, you know, it is the job of people in power to listen to those who don't rather than to try to dictate to them what they should think. And over and over, especially now, I mean, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, certainly this was not the case. But today, the big debates uh, about things like the fundamental dignity of every person, of every human, like those are no longer debates anymore. The left won. And now all Americans pretty much more or less, aside from like Nick Fuentes believes this. So, you know, <laughs> those debates are over. You know, of course, we still debate about, you know, important things, but a healthy society, as you well know, should be able to sustain a certain level of debate yes. on certain things. So I, I feel that I, you know, I'm a populist and I think everybody should be a populist. Um, and um, I guess my trajectory was I was woke for a long time. Like I, I did sort of have my my woke moment that I managed to sort of claw my way out of and still find myself regress into every now and again. So it's definitely an ongoing process. You know, it's really fascinating that you 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 classify yourself as a populist. Not totally surprising given your book. But what's fascinating about that is I was just writing out the other day some of our company values. Mm. And one of the things I wrote was that I think we're anti-populist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and what's fascinating about that, and I think we can save that part of the conversation maybe for later. And the reason why I want to save it for later is despite that, the fact that you classify yourself as a populist and I kind of classify myself as an anti-populist in many ways, I agree with almost everything you write in this book, <laughs> which I think is fascinating. So let's start there before we talk about where we may have different perspectives. So when you talk about the media, Maybe define the term, because I think in this very fragmented age, I think what we call media and especially the mainstream media, which I think is largely what you're critiquing, although you can you can correct me if I'm wrong. What is the media? To me, the critique in the book is specifically about the liberal mainstream corporate legacy media. So news outlets um, that are designed to give commentary and news and reporting to the American people about America and the world and have been doing so for, you know, a certain amount of time are established in American public life as news outlets. And so when you start, you talk about in particular a couple of outlets when you when you provide data, you you provide a lot of data, particularly around MSNBC, CNN and The New York Times. Yeah. And I think sometimes you'll juxtapose that data with, for instance, Fox yeah. News, sometimes The New York Post. But taking a step back, there are a few I think moments where the media, both the both who the media are, mm -hmm. like the journalists, the profile of the average journalist has changed over the past hundred years, and the profile of who the audience has been has changed over the past hundred years. Why don't you give us just a Cliff Notes version of of those sort of key changes that have happened within the media over the past hundred years? Yeah. So if you think about like um, the 1920s, let's say, is an example I like to give. Um, there were in it was sort of one of these golden eras of American journalism, and there were so many communist newspapers in New York City at the time that you could be a communist and have five, eight communist newspapers 
that you would never dream of reading because they were the wrong kind of <laughs> communist newspapers and only this one is the right one, right? Like there was just a ton of journalism, but it wasn't actually nonpartisan journalism. And I think that's something that's really important to point out. So a lot of people think the problem with our journalism today is that it's partisan. And that is not the case. The problem with our journalism today is that it's partisan on behalf of the elites and on behalf of the rich on both sides. And, and, and that it's ignoring 90% of Americans, like the whole normie population of America has been like totally erased. Um, do you get a fair hearing on cultural issues on Fox News and in the New York Post? Because normies tend to be more conservative culturally, but their economic interests are not represented by either side. And we can totally get into that later if you want my critique of where progressivism fails the working class and how it's really abandoned the working class. So back in the day, why were there so many communist newspapers was because the people who became journalists were all from the working classes. You know, in 1930, so moving forward a little bit, just one third of journalists had a college degree. So two, 60, 66% of journalists did not have a college degree. A lot of them didn't finish high school. Like it wasn't considered a job that was high status or that you needed an education for. It was considered very low status, in fact. Um, it was like being a plumber. It was a sort of high working class job. And so journalists came from working class neighborhoods. They stayed and lived in working class neighborhoods. And so they saw themselves as answerable to their fellow working class neighbors, you know, their neighbor who went to work on the line at the factory, you know, or their neighbor who became a truck driver, that's who they saw themselves as answerable to, you know, they ended up becoming a journalist, but their job was really to represent those guys because they had their same values, they had their same struggles, they had their same triumphs, they were they were of the people they were writing about. And so they would write for them and they would meet rich and famous people. They would re meet politicians, but they would always see themselves as outsiders to power, demanding justice on behalf of the little guy who was also outside of power. Today, over 92% of journalists have a college degree. The majority have a graduate degree. The New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, NPR, these most progressive outlets, 75% of their interns come from the top 1% of universities, right? <laughs> so you've had this status revolution that, you know, the book goes into great detail about how that happened, but to where journalists now are part of the elites. You know, the starting salary of a journalist is something like, you know, $35,000 a year. So people are like, how dare you say journalists are elite? Look how little money they're making. It's like, exactly. You have to live in New York City on $35,000 a year. That's just not something that any working class person can manage. I mean, not none. Of course, there are a few who manage to yeah. slip through the cracks. But the avenue towards becoming a journalist today is come from money, go to an elite institution, and then, you know, carry on at elite institutions. And so that has totally shifted who the news is for, because now they're making news for their peers, but their peers are accountants and lawyers and doctors and politicians who they went to school with and Silicon Valley billionaires yep. who they went to school with, right? So they have class solidarity with the elites. And I'll just, I'll end on this. You know, the Sam Bankman Freed um, FTX blow up that's happening right now, people are pointing out that he donated millions of dollars to, to news outlets, right? And they're like, this is why the coverage of him has been so, you know, like non-existent and non-critical. And even after the whole blow up was, the Ponzi scheme was exposed, the New York Times is still treating him with kid gloves. I don't think there's some conspiracy theory, conspiracy here where, you know, like as someone who works in a newsroom, it doesn't happen that you get like a donation from a billionaire and then your boss comes to you and says, hey, FTX just gave us, you know, $6 million. Let's go easy on them. That's not what happens at all. It actually rarely happens. What 
what happens is, is that journalists have class solidarity with people like Sam Bankman fried Like they see themselves in him. He comes from the same background as they do, an upper middle class background, elite institutions, you know, making the world, quote unquote, making the world a better place through environmental activism and voting for Democrats, right? Like this is class solidarity. They didn't need to be told to treat him with kid gloves. That's the, the result of being in the same class. Yeah. I one question though on the day I agree with so much of that. I one one point of clarification though. When I was looking at this data around college degrees, how much of this do you think is just the change in the college going population? Because one area that I come from is education. Mm-hmm. Similar trends happen in education in part because, you know, back around nineteen forty, something like five percent of Americans had a college degree and that goes up to near forty percent. Uh, at this point, I think it's somewhere between 35 and 40 percent of Americans have a college degree now. So how much I know it doesn't fully explain the trends that you're talking about, because you're talking about next to nobody in journalism and then 90 plus percent and then graduate degrees and all that. But you think some of it just has something to do with the fact that more people just went to college generally during that period of time? Oh, yeah, 100 percent. The problem is, is that and if I if, if I may descend a little bit into like flamethrower, like I try to resist this, but like the problem isn't that they go to college. The problem is, is that to graduate from college, you have to go to, you have to take a composition class, which is taught by an English major who had to take a gender theory class in order to get their PhD. Yeah. And that all filters through. So like you're, you're the person who you have the, one of the gatekeepers of, you know, a, a liberal arts education at one of these elite institutions is a, 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 an English PhD who has been taught a lot of French political theory uh, and, and critical theory, <laughs> which has made them really woke and really dumb on really important issues. But the most important thing that it teaches them is to have contempt for people without a college degree. So yeah, we could imagine a world in which, you know, 40% of the population is college educated and does not have contempt for the people who like whose jobs actually involve like feeding us and taking us places and like creating the value that we require in order to sustain ourselves and survive. But that's not what happened. What happened is, is the universities increasingly became part of a knowledge industry that is very, very rewarding. So the, so so leftists and liberals went to college and then created an economy that works really well if you have a college degree and really poorly if you don't. And then from their perch of privilege that they created for themselves through things like NAFTA that were pushed through by Democrats, they now look down on people without a college degree and then to add insult to injury, they call them racist for not voting for the interests of the elites. I mean, that's kind of how I see it. Um, and so it's mm-hmm. it's it's not the, co- the college is a... These people going to college has given them immense amount of power, but also that class solidarity. I mean, there's a class war happening between the working class and the college educated in this country. And um, so much of what is mysterious about what happened over the last six years can be explained through that. One of your central theories, which I share, even President, former President Obama shares, because he said it in Pod Save America not too long ago, is the sense that he didn't say it quite the way you put it, but is the sense that elite progressives who basically run the party and you know dictate a lot of what happens in newsrooms are focused on identity and your theory he doesn't obama doesn't say it like this but he basically said in his interview with pod save america hey we're too focused on racial identity and not focused enough on economics and class uh what you're saying is the reason why Uh, so many affluent elite progressives and media personalities are focused on racial identity is because it's convenient because it then allows them to get off the hook for their 
position in, in our class structure and economic system. Yeah, they get to be the beneficiaries of inequality while still playing, while still convincing themselves that they're the heroes of a morality tale and that the other side are the mm-hmm. bad guys. Like that's what woke politics allows you to do. If you start to, if you convince people that the real divide in America is about gender, which it, it just isn't anymore. I mean, there's just like all the data shows that we're no longer divided on that stuff. Those are not the real divides. The real divide is the class divide. Um, you know, if, if you can convince people that it's about race and gender, then you can distract from the fact that you're benefiting from the class divide, and, you know, by smearing your opponents as stochastic terrorists, for example, right? To use a word that they're using now. And can I uh, can I give you my sense of that, yeah. which is I don't think race doesn't matter, right? In terms of our divides. Like for instance, I was a principal of a charter school in North Nashville, which is a neighborhood that's nearly 100% black with the highest incarceration rate for males in the country. Those, those aren't accidental facts, right? It's not like if, if I'm in that neighborhood and I tell people our divides are just class, they're going to laugh me out of that neighborhood because, of course, there's a reason why historically there's a neighborhood that's all, all black in Nashville that is also the poorest neighborhood with the lowest educational outcomes, et cetera. Now, where I depart from a lot of my progressive friends is what I then want to do about that, right? Because <laughs> I think you can, number one, I just wrote a piece for Persuasion this morning about how we can get at a lot of the goals of affirmative action probably better if we just focus on class within affirmative action. And it would help my students in North Nashville and be a much more politically persuasive intervention if we did it by class than race. And in that case, we could we could help my former students in North Nashville without, for instance, giving a, a leg up to Barack Obama's daughters, who I'm sure he doesn't care whether they get more privilege to get into Harvard. They're going to be just fine, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, I still think race matters, if that yeah, makes sense. I and I think I, you do too. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't mean to suggest yeah. that race doesn't yeah. matter at all. I just mean to suggest that like, for example, New York City's public schools are more segregated than Alabama's, right? Which is consistent yeah. with what you're saying, right? Like such a stat, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I believe yeah. that there are segregated schools in Nashville, but they're but they're just as bad, if not worse, in places that have been ruled by liberals. Meaning, the divide is not like a political one over race. Of course, like Black yeah. Americans are still suffering from the legacies of the past. I mean, there's, you know, education, I think is a big one. Um, police brutality is a real problem, mass incarceration, but these are not issues anymore that have a political divide over them. President Trump released 5,000 black men from prison who were put in prison by Joe Biden's crime bill, right? Uh, you know, police mm-hmm. brutality is now, you know, the last people to put forward a police brutality bill were Republicans was Senator Tim Scott. And he was, you know, he was blocked by the Democrats. He was filibustered by the Democrats because he didn't want to do away with, you know, qualified immunity. Now you may support qualified, you know, getting rid of qualified immunity, that doesn't make you a less of a racist, right? Like it just makes you mm-hmm. have a different policy answer to a problem we now all recognize. So I, God forbid, don't want to suggest that there isn't still a problem. You know, Yes, we have a huge social national problem with how we treat black Americans. 20% of that community is stuck in intergenerational poverty. There's no answers on either side for how to deal with that. The, the left won't talk about crime in the black community because they think it's racist to talk about it. The right won't talk about it because they think it's the liberals problem because it's happening in their backyard. Yeah, we both sides have abandoned black Americans 100% agree with you. Um, I just don't think there's a divide and a political divide anymore in terms of recognizing that these people deserve to live in dignity and that that's not happening. You had this great stat about, I think it was the Washington Post a couple of decades ago, decided to de-emphasize, was it the Washington Post de-emphasized circulation in the black community because it was like, 
it kind of messed up their demographic profile for advertisers. It was, it was actually it was the Los Angeles <laughs> yeah. Times. Yeah, but I mean they were all doing oh, it LA subtly. Times. But the real quote, the money quo I think was from the LA Times. Yeah, because you know as they said, people don't buy advertisements for people living in Watts. Was the kind of like the yeah. This is an interesting part of this whole discussion, right? Because it's my sense is I, I experienced this in Nashville when I was running schools there. Is nobody speaks to not enough media. I don't want to say nobody. Not enough media speaks to communities of color, right? This is why I think Joe Biden kind of came out of, like, if you're in the New York Times, there's like all this famous footage of Biden at the New York Times op-ed group editorial team meeting where they like clearly are offended at, you know, during the primary, 2020 (laughs) primary over Biden. And they kind of like couldn't understand why somebody like Biden would capture the nomination. And I, or like why Barack Obama's ideas continue to be, I think, the only thing personally that unifies the coalition of the Democratic Party in any meaningful way at this point is that this there's this sense of the New York Times values, the Upper West Side, Upper East Side values. And then there's these communities of color around the country, like the people who would send their kids to my schools. And I saw in Nashville, the Tennessean, the Nashville scene especially. These are institutions largely staffed by white progressives who live in the right neighborhood. And like you take an issue like charter schools, for example. They just couldn't understand why charter schools were popular with communities of color because they send their kids to this Pleasantville-esque school that's just bright and shiny. And they're like, neighborhood schools are great for me. And then when these other people are like, no, this isn't working for me, they just couldn't get it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And the journalism would reflect that. All the journalism was like charters or like neoliberal profiteers and yada, yada, yada. And they just couldn't get how, hey, there's like people out here who have a way different experience than me. Yeah, people who worked in charter schools, especially in disadvantaged neighborhoods, like you guys have a really important role because like mostly the people I've encountered who have that profile are liberals. They do vote for Democrats, but they instinctively get how dumb wokeness is because they've seen white progressives in the name of racial justice just screw over black children. Like you've seen it firsthand and the consensus around that and how anybody who opposes it is like you've all experienced that from a real real deep place of like being in the trenches doing God's work. And like so you've seen it firsthand. And so I think that, you know, you guys have a really important voice. And, uh, you know, one thing I could see you working through in this book is, you know, you admit that you're coming out of this somewhat from a left perspective. But I think, uh, as you said at the beginning of the podcast, you're kind of eclectic. You're not necessarily of the left. You didn't vote for Trump. So, you you know, you, you come from places like Newsweek, right? So you... You're not sitting in the Daily Wire offices in Nashville right now, although I can imagine, you know, no offense to them, but like that's not that's not necessarily where you're coming from. You have your own views. So I think there's a part of this which is like, all right, stipulated. The New York Times, MSNBC, CNN are laughably out of touch. I stipulate to that. I think you do an amazing job of laying that out in your book. 91% of New York Times readers identify as Democrats, and as you put in your book, 91%. And so many of these journalists at places like the New York Times are Democrats. Yeah, and, then and, on the flip and, side, and crucially, I just want to throw this in there because it's not in the book, but because the IRS data came out after, but 65% of Americans making over $500,000 a year are now Democrats, whereas 75% of Americans making under $100,000 a year are now Republicans. So there's been a real yeah. scrambling of like who I, who each party is catering to. And and this this gets to like where we go from here, right? Which you you talk about like how to treat 
the, like you talk a bit about the right wing media, and I think there's a part of me that wanted more, but that's not what your my sense is. That's not what your book is. There's so many books about how the right wing media is biased, right? Uh, you know, the loudest voice in the room. All these books about how Fox News and others, uh, as people see it, distort the truth. I imagine you have a lot of views about what's inflated and what's real about that. You talk about it a bit in the book. I wanted to get your sense though of like, because you talk about a few things about what makes the left wing media so out of touch. You talk about the class race thing. Um, I think there's a real issue there. There's this sort of partisan nature of who works at these places and who their audiences are. But I started doing a mental checklist. I'm like, okay, comparing, for instance, MSNBC to Fox News. Fox News is a bigger audience. They have the same issue of political polarization, as you point out in the book. Like they're like, they're Whereas so many of the New York Times readers are liberal basically 90 plus percent or something of the Fox News listeners are Republican. You talk about smugness. <laughs> like the left-wing media to me is smug. They're they're insufferably smug at times. I look at, when I watch Fox, I think they are smug, but I also look at things like some of the alternative media personalities and they feel like another click in the cafeteria to me too. Like when I'm watching the alternative media, which I think is very valuable, they do seem to have this in-group mentality. Like, all right, time to defend Elon Musk. Time to defend Joe Rogan because we're going to go on Joe Rogan. Our friends are defending. And it's like, to me, it feels like I'm sitting in a cafeteria by myself sometimes, if that <laughs> makes any sense. And everybody feels smug to me. I don't know. Does that make any sense yeah, to you? Totally. Like, Because I feel like you, this is a this is a critique of the left-wing uh, mainstream media. And so I don't, I don't expect you to lay out too much about the right-wing. But I just wanted to get a gut check on whether how you feel about the right and alternative media right now? Um, I think Fox News is extremely important. Um, and I, I don't agree with a lot of the criticism. I watch Fox News and CNN all day. I have two, two um, browsers open so I can monitor because I'm an opinion editor. I have to know where the conversation is going. And I mean, first of all, certainly since the insurrection, it was very clear that Rupert Murdoch was totally disgusted and put off by that and that everybody at Fox News got the message that, you know, this is unacceptable. They started calling Joe Biden president-elect immediately and just have been, look, they've been ultra-focused on the on three issues, inflation, crime, and immigration, which happen to be the top issues of the American people. So I, I just feel that in the, in the class war, Fox is very committed to where the normie position is at. Of course, Fox News hosts make a lot of money, right? Like there's no, they're not living yeah. in, with the, but they're- And they're in New York. Yeah. And they're in New York, <laughs> right? Yeah. So they yeah. definitely have that sense of like, oh, you know, we are the real outsiders, right? Like we're yeah. shunned and can't, blah, blah, blah. right, fine. But, um, but at the same time watching it, I just think that, you know, the narrative that Fox that you read in New York, uh, in the New York Times, you hear on like CNN and MSNBC, like, you know, Fox News ate my parents brains. Right. It's real. Mm -hmm. It's the opposite. Fox News isn't turning working class people conservative. It's conservative because it appeals to working class audience. And if you look at the data, you know, 10 years ago, 25 percent of Fox's audience had a college degree. And if you look at the data now, 25 percent of their audience has a college degree, whereas if you look at CNN, in 2012, they had the same numbers as Fox. And now it's almost 50% have a college degree, meaning something in their message has been alienating liberal working class viewers who have now gone over to Fox. I mean, Fox now, Tucker Carlson has more Democrats watching him 
than anybody on CNN or MSNBC. It's the most watched show among Democrats. That's not these aren't hate viewers, you know. These are yeah. working class liberals who go to Tucker Carlson because they hear what they think on that program. Um, so I, 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 I have a much rosier view of Fox. I, I go on Fox because I value what they're doing. I think they're trying to speak to work. Do I agree with everything? No. Just what you know when they when the jobs report comes out, my God, you want to tear your hair out because you know the way they talk about the working class. But overall, you know, if both sides have abandoned the working class from an economic point of view, at least Fox News is not insulting their values and calling them racist while abandoning them economically. And you're much more likely to hear economic populism on Fox because there's much more of that coming out of Republicans like Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley and now J.D. Vance, who are real economic populists, whereas the left has no real economic populist agenda. They have a welfare agenda, which to working class Americans, their their interests and the interests of the poor are not aligned. They're actually in tension with each other. So so when you think about what would be a pro-working class economic agenda, I mean, Trump did a lot of it, but things like reshoring manufacturing, I mean, the, the, the poster children for that, they're all on the right. So that's Fox. Now, I, I also think but it's- Can I yeah, say one thing about that though? Uh, just from somebody who's been, you know, my dad is a very Trump Republican. He's been his, basically his whole life- since he's been to the United States in the seventies, where's he from? This is this is he's from India, mm-hmm. and this is this is not backed up by data. So this is just my experience. So I'm just gonna. My sense is the tail, and I know you, you go on Fox, so I don't know how much you can kind of wade in here. My co-host also goes on Fox a lot. Ricky, you might know Ricky Schott, uh, and she works for the Post. But my sense is in watching Fox when I compare it to the Bush years, for example, is that. The one thing I do buy about Fox, people who critique it, is that it's partisan. And here's why. When George W. Bush was president, by and large, there are some exceptions, they are pro-Iraq war. They're pro-free trade when he's pro-free trade. And then when the, the, the Republican position changes, they tend to change their oh, position. Oh, 100%. And, yeah. You know, they're 100% partisan. Well, the yeah, fair yeah. and balanced thing. But the fair and balanced thing pisses yeah, me off, right? Because like, I know, but like, I want things to be truthful. And, and I think like... I'm like in search of a good media outlet in many ways. And there are some that I think do better than others. And I think the alternative media, I think, is fascinating because I think you this this book came out. When did you write this book? Oh, yeah. I, uh, I, like I want to say a word about it, alternative. But I will just say, yeah. like, Fox has more Democrats on it than CNN or MSNBC has Republicans, but by an order of magnitude. So they have, you know, multiple times throughout the day, five, six times throughout the day, they have panels in which they feature a Democrat so that their audience gets the Democrat perspective. Of course, they always have to lose to the Republicans, right? Because you have like, no, it's like, thank you. I was going to say, and they always lose, but that's, that doesn't matter. The point is they are, they are showing their audience this is their the their best attempt to represent their point of view. And they have good people yeah. on. They have smart fighters on, people who are like much better than me at like putting, you know, I actually don't know that I would be, even be able to do it. But like, so, and you'll never see that on MSNBC or CNN. You'll never see like a legitimate Trump supporter giving the case for Trump, you know, giving the case yeah. for DeSantis, explaining why this, these people. So, but uh, I want to say on, on, on um, independent media, Fox is also playing an extremely important role in showing where the mainstream is so that when you have these more conspiratorial minded independent outlets, 
you can see the difference between the mainstream and where they're going off the off the rails. The problem on the left is that it seems to me like there's very little difference now between what the mainstream liberal media is doing, definitely in terms of like identity politics and what like the craziest yeah. versions of like, you know, <laughs> like the wokest, the, 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 the intelligentsia's wokesphere are doing, right? So that that's the main difference, I think. And in, in that sense, I think they really have, yeah. So, oh, you asked when my book came out, 2021, October, 2021, yeah. And so you wrote it in like the years preceding that, I imagine, right? Like, so you were kind of accumulating your research in like the couple of years before that? I wrote it during lockdown, so it took me about nine months. Yeah. Got it. Uh, I've spent enough time with people because I'm not a media person. You know, I came from politics and I come from schools. Those are the two areas I come from. And I experienced in schools, I ran uh, the network of schools I ran in the South from 2010 to 2016. And then I, I ran a political action committee and series of democratic political action committees during the Trump years. Mm -hmm. And one thing I experienced firsthand in both of those areas that I think has affected media the most was that the managers of these companies, for all the bias they had, were then supercharged by their own employees who were, they were basically yeah, afraid of their own employees. Definitely. Uh, and so these people were getting fired. Some of them deserved it. Some of them probably not. And there was this sense, and definitely I think the, the crescendo of this was 2020. Yeah. Uh, around the Floyd stuff, that people were afraid of their own newsrooms. I think that, you know, Barry Weiss, I think has written about this a lot, about like all the internal dynamics of the, the New York Times. It's interesting, we, when we started Lost Debate, one of the things we do in hiring people, and I'm a known progressive, like, so this is coming at it from a progressive perspective who spent most of my time amongst people of color doing work, whether it's electing candidates, we have a good track record arena electing candidates of color, while also like serving kids in the South. We are kind of actively anti-identity politics here, but we also ask people to engage with a lot of these media controversies, like, oh, what happened to Alexi McCammon? What happened to Don McNeil? And we ask people in the interview process mm -hmm. to tell us whether they thought those companies handled that well or not. And there's no right answer. All I wanna know is whether you're the type of person who looks at your colleagues and thinks they deserve due process, that um, their intentions matter, and that you're gonna like be a productive member of the conversation as opposed to performing on Twitter when it comes to the people that you're locking, you know, arms with every day in the work. And I think it's worked pretty well. We haven't had anybody come to this company who I think we have all sorts of political differences and all that, but nobody's turned on each other or bullied each other in that way, which I think has been a breath of fresh air, you know? I love that so much. I honestly think that's just, you're doing God's work and I bless you that you should continue to go as my people That's say. all I wanted was, I wanted Mikhail, validation. Ohio. That's what I was sharing that for. <laughs> no, it's I just, amazing. That's all I wanted from you. It's, with it's that. really, yeah. really incredible what you're building. And I really, I really hope that you manage to just that it blows up because it's so necessary. And I, you know, character over politics is the most important thing. And I wonder, is it 
like you and your dad, like, do you guys talk about politics? Is he super proud of yeah. your work? Even, you know, he ran for state Senate oh, wow. uh, this past election cycle as a Republican in Upper East Side. So you can imagine. How oh, he did. wow. But uh, <laughs> yeah, he's he's very Trumpy. And I would say my brother is also a Trump voter, but they're very different. My brother is more like a Ben Shapiro Republican. Mm -hmm. So like somebody who's more likely to vote for DeSantis. Mm -hmm. My dad kind of has like joined a cult. Um, but maybe I'll end by just talking about this anti-populism yeah, thing, yeah, because I think great, this is important because yeah. I like talking about people in the media about this. Here's why I classify myself and I think a lot of the people who work here, I don't think this classifies everybody here. Like Ricky, I don't think this applies to her. But I'm a kind of anti-populist maybe because I'm I'm contrarian and now I view myself as part of the alternative media. So when I look at people like Matt Tybee and Breaking Points mm -hmm. and Joe Rogan, mm -hmm. who people I really respect. Mm -hmm. Like I think Tybee is somebody who I don't agree with them on how he thinks about all the Russia stuff or whatever, but I do think him giving a hard time to the the traditional media about, do you really know this thing about Russia that you're saying? Like, I love that and I, I, I think it's re very valuable like, like how contrarian he is. Like Ukraine's a good example, like where I'm like very traditional, I guess, in the way I think about Ukraine and like how aggressive they are and how much we support them. But I do, I do, as somebody who's anti-Iraq war, I do appreciate anybody who calls out the military industrial complex and whatever. Same is true of breaking points, right? Like when they run a segment that's like, hey, and I'm maybe caricaturing them, but like when they're like, hey, like maybe the FBI did have a role in January 6th, which is a segment they did. I'm like... Yeah, I don't know that you did that in a way that really passes muster for me, but I like that these new outlets are out there and they're kind of going after power structures. But I call myself an anti-populist because I believe in institutions. So, for instance, when Crystal says things like, yeah, like, let's defund the FBI, I'm like, no, like the FBI is like actually stopping sex traffickers and terrorists and all of this. And I really want this institution to exist. I don't think like like whipping up hysteria against it is helpful. I want to reform it. And maybe that makes me a neoliberal, whatever. The same is true of charters, for example. Like a lot of people like that don't love charters because we're, I tend to be more skeptical of labor unions because of it. And people view like labor unions as part of like the populist crusade. Um, I'll stop there because I'm kind of like hijacking. Yeah, Robbie, I have I have some really bad news for you. What? Like a really bad news. Am I a neighbor liberal? Am I a neighbor liberal? Populist. <laughs> Am I? Yeah, like the thing you you object to from those folks is like there's some issues where they they and I respect them. I want to say I do yeah, respect them. Of course, they're them. I don't know. I, I don't know great. any of them personally. I don't know any of them personally. But that yeah. whole anti-establishment thing. Like, that's very elitist. Like, you have to have a certain level of security and cushion to be like, let's get rid of the police. Let's get rid of this institution. Right. Who needs that? You know, like, right. I mean, you're like, I, I, I know this is really, really bad news for you because you're very <laughs> invested in being an anti-populist, but I think you're a populist. And and I think that you're a right-wing populist. And I think I'm, I'm sort of headed there too. And what I mean by that is, you have an inherent respect for the people who need our help. Like you don't think it's your job to tell them what to think. You think it's your job to listen to them. And if we've been put in this position of privilege where we get to have a say and we get to have influence and we get to be teachers or we get to be journalists or talkers or what have you, our job is to elevate their needs and their concerns and not to make things about what we want. So that that's that's populism. <laughs> You know, it's funny. This is like political therapy. I was saying to somebody the other day, 
I, we took a quiz in the office, uh-huh. and I don't remember what it was, but I think I was more conservative than Ricky. I might be wrong, but I, I'm like, I'm kind of like a Jared Polis Democrat, like a libertarian Democrat. I call it like an action park Democrat mm-hmm. because I'm like, I'm very, I'm more libertarian leaning than a lot of my friends. I, I think if I lived in the UK, I would be a conservative. I was like anti-Brexit or pro-Brexit, uh, but not for the, the, the sort of racist reasons, but I think that... Like, I don't want to, if I were a British person, I wouldn't want to be in the same coalition as Hungary, for instance, or like, I like my sovereignty. And I don't think as the US, if we're like, let's have like Mexico and Canada as I love those countries, but I barely want to be in the same country as some of the other states we have in this country. If I, if we could do it all over, you know what I'm saying? So I have like different reasons. And I also like, don't like dumb regulation and the idea that you're going to like join up and have all this complicated superstructure didn't make sense to me. But like, I think I'm kind of like a Small C conservative, but not a Republican, if that makes sense. Yeah. That's that's just kind of, I'm, I'm workshopping. Yeah, yeah. It. These labels don't matter at all. It only matters if you have kindness in your heart and believe in character over politics, which you do. So those are the most important things. So at this point, what are you working on? What can our audience do to support the things that you're doing? Uh, because you've been so generous with your time with us today. Well, I'm unsuccessfully trying to sell my next book. So if there's anybody out there who wants a book by me, <laughs> let me know. What's your next book? I'm. I'm. Uh, I can announce it because I'm. I'm um, very much looking for partners in this. But I. I want to write a book about who is the American working class and do they still have access mm. to the American dream? And um, the answer is some of them really do. And the things that would help more of them have access to the American dream are not the things you would think. It's actually really surprising. Um, So um, I'm working on that. I'm at Newsweek. I co-host The Hill's morning show rising on mondays you can catch me there oh i didn't know that. that's yes. great yeah um, Lo- I, I only see clips of that show because ricky sends it yeah to me. yeah it's a great um, show. And so i gotta start great watching team. it in full yeah. yeah and i am trying to stay off twitter more although i can't help myself i keep Good. checking in on elon musk because he's having he's a riot and uh, i'm not a big fan of his because of his dealings <laughs> with china i find them really objectionable but i have to say like the chinese communist party i'm very much enjoying what's been going on <laughs> Oh my God. Oh my God. What a quote. What a quote. So many quotes we're going to be able to lift from this out of context. Uh, Have a good time with that. Uh, I have so much thoughts about the The Elon thing is the classic cafeteria thing. I'm like, I don't love all the people piling on Elon, but I also don't love all the people defending him. So I'm looking at it like, I'm going to sit this one out. I'm going to sit this out. (laughs) Well, I'm a huge fan of your work. Thank you for uh, helping me through this political therapy. Um, well, great. Well, thank you so much. Just make sure you go out there and get bad news how woke media is undermining democracy wherever you get your books. Uh, Amazon, I think I picked this up at McNally Jackson. So over in New York, they're, you know, always find your independent books. They carry it. They had it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I had, we have two copies of it. One we think we ordered in Amazon, but one I, it was either that or, or Bradley's, (laughs) if you know, Tusk's bookstore in Lower East Side, it was one of those two. Uh, so Great book. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week's episode. Once again, I would like to thank Batia for taking the time to have an illuminating conversation on the current state of journalism and news. Her book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy, can be found on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you get your books. Regressives is produced for Lost Debate by me and Joe Engelbrecht. You could subscribe to the Lost Debate and the Regressives on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. In the next episode, we'll speak with Victor Matheson, a sports economist who studied public financing 
in large-scale stadiums for 20 years. We saw a stadium for the NFL in Buffalo coming in with $850 million of public money, a real backroom deal that was totally non-transparent. And at that time, I said, this is a terrible deal, one of the worst I've ever seen. It's hard to imagine a worse stadium deal than what's going on in Buffalo, at which point Nashville said, oh, wait a minute here, hold my beer, and came up with about a $1.3 billion taxpayer subsidy for a $2 billion stadium. That's it for The Regressives. I'm Robbie Gupta. Thank you for listening.